Hi, my name is Dan Rabinovitz. High quality internet access is an essential ingredient to ensure access to jobs, education, healthcare, and community information. The internet gives people a voice and opportunities to share knowledge that can strengthen local communities and global economies. Today, I want to talk about the role of 5G in the context of getting more people online and the health of the telecom industry. I'm Sean Kinney, and welcome to Will 5G Change the World, the weekly podcast where we engage with a wide variety of industry experts to answer this important question. But first, we've got a recurring segment where we get to know our guest a little bit better by posing three questions from the Proust questionnaire. Dan, are you ready for those? Yes. All right. Question number one, what is your favorite journey? Anywhere I'm going on a bicycle. And question number two, Dan, what is your most treasured possession? My grandfather's pocket watch. He received it from his father in 1922. I got it from him in 1977, and I gave it to my son, who was named after my grandfather just a few years ago. So really, it's not mine anymore, per se, which is why it's even more special. And question number three, who are your heroes in real life? Right now, frontline medical workers. They are running a marathon that has no end in sight. Well, now, Dan, I want to dive into the 5G portion of our show. And, uh, you know, to start with, I'm confident our listeners are familiar with Facebook, but perhaps not so familiar with Facebook connectivity. Could you give us a bit of a background on the origins of Facebook connectivity, its mission, and then how that fits into the company's larger goal of building community and bringing the world closer together? Facebook connectivity fits into a strategic business plan for Facebook. So a lot of what we're doing is is intended to get more people online, regardless of what they do there. Uh, but this this is essential from a business perspective because we are addressing the top of the funnel. So when we get people connected to the internet, that's good for our business because that gives those folks a chance to use the Facebook family of products. Um, we're also focused on improving network speeds, which becomes more and more important as, we, uh, as we've all experienced when, when you have a spinning clock um, and you're waiting for a video to load or your chat uh, doesn't work right because um, one part of the, the connection isn't good. Um, we're really focused on, on that um, aspect as well. So speed matters from a connectivity perspective. And, um, and again, uh, although that's, that's good for the world, it's also good for our business. So I just want to be really clear that um, what we're doing here is not focused on, on charity or on some sort of purely altruistic um, uh, exercise. We're really here to focus on, uh, on making the internet a, a more affordable and more um, abundant resource and to get more and more people online. Let me give a concrete example of how we're trying to build abundance of capacity in the world. We recently announced a partnership with leading African and global operators to build to Africa. This is one of the largest subsea cable projects in the world that when finished will interconnect 23 countries in Africa, the Middle East and Europe. This is going to provide really a kind of um, amazing amount of capacity, redundancy, and importantly also reliability across Africa. 
And it also supplements increasing demand for capacity in the Middle East. So it's actually, uh, I would say, an ancillary benefit that this investment in Africa is also improving connectivity across the Middle East. This is important because it, it's really gonna be focused on supporting the growth of 4G and 5G and broadband access for hundreds of millions of people. Today in Africa, we still have a lot of 2G and we have lots and lots of unconnected people. So the, the you know, fundamental building block of broadband access and capacity is, is fiber optic cable. And that's why we've been focused on you know, building a, a ton of that capacity in Africa and also making sure that the connections to Africa subsea are now actually improving latency and resiliency and redundancy across the entire continent. Now, Sean, there's no silver bullet for connecting the world. You know, there's there's a lot of talk in the industry today about, um, you know, there's there's like one magic thing that, that could happen. Um, and we, we just, we don't believe that. There's not a single technology or program that can get the job done especially when the connectivity gaps and the infrastructure needs are varying so widely across different regions, the difference between cities and rural communities. So instead of looking for this one-size-fits-all solution, we're focused on investing in a building block strategy. We design and test, and we, we partner with different kinds of companies to build different connectivity programs and technologies that can be used independently or together to help expand and improve connectivity. As you said, Dan, there's not really one silver bullet here, not one magic answer. So you have to follow a number of different courses. Uh, one that Facebook connectivity is engaged with that I'd like to discuss today is the telecom infra project. Uh, for our audience, you know, TIP has a lot of things going on, but perhaps today we can just focus in on Open RAN. Uh, this is something that I, I, I've covered a lot lately, and I get the sense that we are most certainly approaching an inflection point of some sort, but I, I do see a diversity of opinions in terms of what happens after that inflection point. So I wanted to get your take, Dan. Uh, what do you think the near-term promise of Open RAN is, and what, if any, potential impediments do you see to operator adoption, and then to go down a layer further, the ongoing collaborative process that has to play out among vendors to make that operator adoption possible. Yeah, Sean, this is a this is a great question, and we're also really excited about how much uh, attention Open RAN is getting. And I think there's some really good reasons for it. There's a confluence of things that are coming together, and TIP um, luckily has been really at the at the pulse of these different. Um, I would say. Uh, you know, industry trends and economic realities that are that are helping to, to drive this. So first, let's start with um, with TIP. So you know, if you're not familiar with TIP, it's a collaborative group of operators, suppliers, developers, system integrators, and other organizations who are creating new approaches to building and deploying telecom network infrastructure. And and the real focus here is that the underlying health of the mobile ecosystem is not awesome. You know, if you look at the aggregate operating profit of mobile operators globally, it's, it's you know, single digits everywhere. So it's, it's not a very profitable business, despite the fact that everybody wants the service. And uh, I think that there are several reasons for that. Um, you could argue that as a regulated industry, they have you know, unique challenges um, relative to other industries. Um, 
But I think it's more fundamental than that. Um, these are companies that have to spend an enormous amount of money on license spectrum. They have enormous capital um, uh, requirements in order to build out networks. And they also have a challenge with operating expenses because a lot of what um, operators are doing today is still, I would say, firmly rooted in the past. So they've not been able to traverse that journey to get to web scale and cloud scale on a lot of their, a lot of their tools. So when you put all of that together, you know, the, the reason why Open RAN has become so interesting is because for the first time, the telecom infra um, uh, industry and the mobile operators that are driving the, um, the purchase of a lot of this equipment, they realize they need to get away from their monolithic supply chain. They've been buying RAN and transport and packet core and a lot of the, the professional services to manage all that from one supplier at a time, or maybe they split their networks across two, but effectively they end up with very little control over the outcome themselves. They are very dependent on their suppliers to deliver um, you know, the technology, the experience, and, um, and also uh, the pace of innovation. And, and this has really been um, one of the founding principles of TIP is let's disaggregate the software and the hardware. Let's reinvigorate the tech stack inside of mobile operators because they lost the, the engineering muscle that they used to have. And by doing that, this creates a, a more diverse supply chain. It gives operators more freedom to, to choose how and when they're going to deploy certain kinds of technology and features, et cetera. And also gives them the opportunity to reshape the operation of their network and the maintenance and support and deployment of that. So super, um, it's, it's very challenging. I mean, if you look at companies, web scale companies like Facebook, we did this ourselves uh, in the way that we build networks and we operate our data centers. But um, the, the level of complexity of us doing that for ourselves is significantly, it's significantly less than what would be required to reshape the entire uh, telecom ecosystem. So this is an ambitious project. Open RAN, just to get back to that, and, and then we can uh, talk a little bit more, um, really has started with partners like Vodafone, Deutsche Telekom, OEMs like Mavenir, Parallel Wireless, and others. And all coming together to say, hey, you know what? It's not mission critical that we differentiate on hardware. Let's build white box hardware and focus on software and services that can be disaggregated from um, other pieces that, that are delivered. And, and I think there is a, an economic imperative here because for some operators, they need to really get control, not only of the spending on their, on their 4G densification, but as we move to 5G, and that is also a dense network by definition, they're going to be buying a lot more stuff, particularly RAN equipment. And, uh, and by focusing now on converting that to an open architecture, an open standard, and the potential to source white box hardware, I think this really changes the game. So I think open RAN in and of itself is a, it's pretty expansive topic. So let's try to narrow in just a little bit more, Dan. Um, 
you know, you told us earlier there's three and a half billion people in the world that uh, don't have reliable access to to broadband and Facebook connectivity. You know, one of your goals is to is to reach into these areas and pr- get that service up and running so that you can grow your platform. On the open RAN side, we've seen some of these operator trials focused on rural areas like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mozambique, so forth. So if open RAN creates the economics that can connect rural parts of the world, like those that I mentioned, is that in and of itself a win or is the expectation for more? Is the expectation that this will proliferate throughout networks, regardless of whether they're rural or urban? Sean, that's a great question. Um, so our ambitions are uh, are very, very high, as are our partners. And so I, I would say speaking on behalf of companies like Telefonica and Vodafone, for example, and Facebook, um, we don't see Open RAN as a niche play only for rural deployments. It just so happens that it's one of the best places to go prove out that this technology is meeting the full requirements of an operator. So think of it as um, if you're going to test a new supplier, regardless of who that is, you're probably going to take a more conservative approach when you get started. And so um, these rural areas have, have turned out to be a really nice proving ground to make sure that the technology completely integrates into the mobile operator's core and their operational model. So for example, um, we've seen significant progress in, um, in, uh, in Peru. We jointly developed uh, an alternative service provider focused on rural connectivity called Internet para todos. And um, Telefonica is one of the investors in that, um, in that entity. Uh, and the key thing about this, um, uh, about Internet para todos, IPT, is that it's actually, an, in a way, a kind of neutral host wholesale network, but it does um, uh, work directly with consumers. And that's a little confusing, but think of this as a network as a service. We're building out low cost RAN into rural areas and both Telefonica Peru and any other mobile operator in the, in the country have equal rights and access to take advantage of that infrastructure that we're building out um, as part of IPT. So the, the cool thing here is that um, by creating this uh, opportunity where um, you know, we, have, we have real live LTE service, we have you know, lots of customers that are getting on the network, we're able to test, for example, in this particular case, Parallel Wireless is the, is the, um, uh, the OEM for the equipment. We're testing that in a live network with, you know, real, with uh, real users. So that is a great proof point and, and you know, serves as a, a kind of lighthouse project where you know, operators around the world can say, hey, this stuff actually works. It's not just a fantasy. Um, and we're, we're seeing that now in, in Europe, in, uh, in some key markets, you're going to see Open RAN deployed commercially uh, in, in, I would say, um, more demanding markets where the stakes are higher in terms of uh, performance. That's coming quite soon. And importantly, um, we see now that, uh, you know, once, once the TIP community harmonized with the, what's called the ORAN specification, you know, we've, we've taken, um, you know, a lot of tension out of the system in, insofar as 
TIP is not focused on standards. We're focused on plug fests and integration of uh, disaggregated hardware and software. So now we've really brought a number of other industry players and operators to the table who are excited that we've harmonized you know, a, a kind of well-formed specification coming out of ORAN and brought it into this you know, well-formed approach to disaggregation called OpenRAN. And um, uh, I think now we've, we've basically made it really easy and clear to see a pathway to a range of SKUs that are coming up uh, that will support OpenRAN. Um, let me talk just maybe one or two more points about uh, a project that we've built called Evenstar. Evenstar is basically a way for Facebook connectivity to help proliferate a number of white box SKUs. These are multi-band, multi-mode RRUs. So these are remote radio units for 4G and 5G. And um, the investment that we're making today is basically to make sure that a number of, of OEMs can take advantage of common proven hardware SKUs. And in many cases, we're going to put these through a pipe cleaning um, uh, activity with uh, friendly operators so that we can you know, get approval for the, this equipment to get onto the networks as soon as possible. This is a way that we can accelerate the availability of competitive uh, SKUs that, that can be shipped all over the world for both rural applications and dense urban. So we're really excited about this. Dan, you mentioned uh, Vodafone there, and uh, they've been very public about their plans for, for Open RAN, recently mentioning that they see uh, urban deployments in the 2022 timeframe. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Open RAN and 5G. We have a lot of these sort of technological confluences that we're looking at right now with uh, Open RAN and this move towards disaggregation that you see elsewhere in the network, maybe under the umbrella term of, of virtualization. We've also got edge computing, private networks, and these other factors, all that Open RAN can, can certainly influence. And I know I'm asking you to speculate a little bit here, but can you maybe tell us what you see it happening in terms of open RAN influencing 5G and then the, the services that it supports? Yeah, um, and I think uh, a little speculation is always um, really important because, uh, you know, this industry does move, um, you know, in a, in a way that uh, forces everybody to be able to see around corners and get a long-term view. So uh, I appreciate the question for sure. So if you look at um, what's happened in Japan with Rakuten, for example, who are building really a, um, a completely disaggregated open network for, for 5G, what, you know, that's a great, um, again, like a great example of uh, a new entrant into the market taking a pretty bold approach to, to building a 5G network. And um, you know, I think that uh, we should all be paying very close attention to what DISH in the US is going to do as well, because they have this benefit of starting with a white sheet of paper. And I think it's gonna be super exciting to see how DISH builds and, um, and deploys uh, a next generation network. But those are two new entrants. Companies like Vodafone and Telefonica are taking a really hard uh, stance and saying that they are going to convert a significant portion of their, of their spend to open RAN. And that's driven by a desire to, to you know, 
do two things. One, really focus on driving the cost of you know, the total cost of ownership of their entire telecom stack down. And Open RAN is going to allow them to do that. The second thing, which is just as important, is to build the engineering muscles and the agility and flexibility to deliver new services. And, and this is critical also for the health of the mobile ecosystem. These companies need to get better at building value-added services on top of their networks. And you know, our, our sincere goal is to help in both of those, um, uh, in both of those uh, activities. So as you look at um, 5G in particular, because it, it is different than the 4G world, you know, a lot of times people say, hey, like, what, you know, why is, why can Open RAN be helpful for 5G? And in fact, you know, some, there are days when we have to ask ourselves this, this very difficult question inside of um, Facebook connectivity, is 5G even important for our mission? Because if you really look at, um, at the 5G you know, modem, apart from the, the benefit of the millimeter wave, which is the benefit whether you're using a 5G waveform licensed spectrum or unlicensed spectrum, you know, millimeter wave just has a ton of capacity. If you set that aside for a second, because it's very difficult to get ubiquitous millimeter wave coverage everywhere in the world, the difference between a 4G and a 5G modem is not that big because we're already really, really good at coding schemes and we're approaching Shannon's limit in terms of how much information per hertz we can get into, uh, uh, you know, into any um, wireless uh, connection. So the, the benefit has to be somewhere else. Um, and you know, there have been a lot of uh, discussions about the benefit of 5G is super low latency. Well, yeah, that's, that's um, turns out really, really interesting for factory automation and you know, vehicle to vehicle communications, uh, CB2X, et cetera. There are some really interesting IoT applications that might really benefit from ultra low latency. And you could argue the future in AR, VR, there may be some real benefits there. But at the end of the day, um, it's not really going to be a big deciding factor in getting the next three and a half billion people connected. Um, that's not you know, the highest order bit. So what, what is really important is that we use this moment can, you know, as, we, as we go through this big secular upgrade from 4G to 5G to reshape the way the networks operate and the way they're deployed. And that, I think, is um, the biggest opportunity for companies, to your point, like Vodafone, like Telefonica, to radically improve their, their overall cost structure and their ability to use this 5G moment to just completely change um, all the, the ways they've been building out and deploying networks. That means, hey, you can start to move to you know, web scale technologies, use um, the telco cloud. So, how many workloads can you now move to the cloud, creating way better resiliency and flexibility, the ability to drop new features really quickly relative to the way things work today? Um, all of that ends up being really exciting. And just to finish that off, because you're you asking some good questions about what's happening at the edge of the network. Well, there is this potential now with the, the way that, um, uh, you know, RAN is architected as part of the split between the, radio, the radio unit, the DU, and the CU. We have this ability now to move more and more of the processing close to the edge of the network. 
there's a real advantage um, to that in terms of developing very specific services that can be used either for private networks or the enterprise, but also um, just you know, without having to think of new use cases, when we get to massive MIMO, which is a real nice benefit of moving to 5G, uh, there are some really significant technical problems that start to emerge, particularly when you get to high orders of massive MIMO. And some of the work that's emerging now in the TIP uh, project group around radio intelligent control really start to become interesting because now for the first time we can start to put, to, to put artificial intelligence and machine learning in the radios themselves to optimize power, coverage, and capacity for changing conditions. So I think there's, again, like some, some really interesting benefits that will come just from, I would call it the nuts, nuts and bolts of uh, managing radios and the nuts and bolts of operating networks that have this potential to really transform the industry. So let's bring it home, Dan, and, and answer this question, will 5G change the world? You know, that's why I started the podcast, because the, the potential of 5G is just so broad that it's really difficult and a struggle for me. Do I answer this question based on short-term indicators rather than, you know, admitting that can't really answer it right now because there's still so much left that's going to happen both technologically and then in the way that technology is applied? So I pulled a quote here from a Austrian economist, Joseph Schumpeter. He was discussing it macroeconomics, but I think this is applicable to our discussion in a number of different ways. But the, the quote's this, we're dealing with a process whose every element takes considerable time in revealing its true features and ultimate effects. We must judge its performance over time as it unfolds through decades or centuries. You know, this reminds me of your, your comment about the pocket watch. You know, I am sure that was a very impactful moment when you received it and when you gave it to your son. But then there's this other impactful narrative that is generational. So when we think about 5G, when we think about connecting these three and a half billion people that are not connected currently, what do you see as the impacts over decades, over centuries? Well, that is such a, a great question, and um, uh, and it really does put the pressure on because you know we are talking about generational things. So I'll start the I'll start my answer actually with a little bit of a joke, <laughs> and the joke is that odd number G's are generally not the best <laughs> G's, and even number G's are really awesome. Um, and I'll just give you an example. So you know. 1G basically was amps, it was analog. Um, it, it was amazing for its time, but um, you know, very quickly the, uh, uh, you know, the mobile ecosystem figured out that, hey, you know, in order to get to, to capacity and scale, we're gonna need to move to digital communications. It's also more secure and there were all kinds of benefits to do that. Um, 2G really changed the world because it did introduce for the first time a global standard GSM, you know, 2G was deployed everywhere. It was ubiquitous, you know, largely two bands to cover the world. And, um, and then, you know, the innovations that came as part of 2G, GPRS and then Edge started to add data. Uh, it was really like an, an incredibly exciting time to be alive because uh, the mobile ecosystem was just innovating so quickly. 3G, as it turns out, it was hyped a lot. 
it didn't really deliver on the promise of you know a, a true data centric network although it was you know certainly better than 2g it fell well short of expectations and there was a lot of hype there and it wasn't until the industry embraced hey let's just build this as a full you know ip packet based um you know tech stack when we got to 4g then mobile really exploded, you know, and it was like perfect timing because it coincided with the introduction of the smartphone and, you know, like the rest is history. When you look at 4G, it really was wildly successful and um, in every possible way, right? And, and now we see LTE handsets, you know, that sell for $25 in, in markets like India. Um, so, you know, the scale, the breadth, uh, the quality of, um, of the experience is, is just really remarkable it's a it's an industry achievement now the question is is 5g going to be more like 4g or is 5g going to be more like 3g <laughs> and i still think the jury is out um you know I, I i do think that um if 5g can morph and start to embrace a few more principles that would help it um to be more relevant to uh to emerging markets for example then I think that 5G has the chance to also have the kind of impact um, that we've seen with 4G. But just let's put this in in um, let's put this in perspective. It took a long time to get a $25 LTE handset. 5G handsets will take quite some time to get to that price point, and it's important to put this in perspective because we still have consumers in Africa, for example, who are on 2G networks and their operators are contemplating an upgrade from 2G to 3G. You know, this is something that we really would like to avoid, right? And we'd like to avoid it because the device ecosystem for 4G is robust. But if you go and ask those same operators, hey, why don't you skip 3G and 4G and go to 5G? It's not on the table. The cost of that is just far too great for, for most of those operators today. And it's not just Africa. There are lots of operators around the world who are struggling with the affordability of this secular upgrade to 5G. So I think we have to have a very um, brave face on this and understand that, to your point, it's gonna take years uh, to see this, um, this upgrade to 5G across the globe. Um, that being said, I do think that by taking advantage of this change to 5G, we do open up an incredible opportunity for operators to really reset their cost structure. And that's also, you know, in some ways that could end up being really, really important for the whole industry to thrive because we need to, you know, frankly, we just want to see a much more profitable, much healthier mobile ecosystem because all of our uh, services depend on that. And it really, um, it helps to drive more investment in the networks, more expansion, more capacity, more coverage. All that stuff gets better when the economics of the operators improve. And so, you know, I will hang on to, <laughs> to that as potentially the biggest transformation that we can expect from 5G inside of the next five to seven years. After that, it's really going to be down to, hey, can we come up with like, you know, a next generation set of experiences, potentially based on augmented reality, virtual reality, that really start to drive, um, you know, uh, you know, something that we, we can't deliver over 4G today or Wi-Fi. Last couple thoughts. Um, 
also, I, I would say is that as a challenge to the industry, I would like to see us looking at two things um, more deeply. We talked about the introduction of AI and ML. I think that's, that's really interesting. But I also think um, the opportunity with 5G for massive MIMO could be quite important um, to, to reshape uh, capacity for urban settings. But there's also an opportunity to leverage massive MIMO in rural areas for a new class of fixed wireless access and, um, and you know, potentially uh, you know, reshaping the amount of capacity we can deliver out in remote settlements, et cetera. And the second, and you know, this is uh, something that um, I've personally been uh, evangelizing for, for a long time. Let's try for the first time in our industry's history to harmonize the coexistence and the equal importance of Wi-Fi and unlicensed spectrum to 5G, to the 3GPP world. In this moment where operators are under the stress now of having to upgrade big chunks of their network to 5G, there's going to be a gap on how fast that transition can happen. And there's still like an insatiable need for broadband internet capacity. That capacity demand is continuing to go up even while these um, operators are upgrading. So the, you know, the logical thing to do here is to embrace the benefit of what is the atomic building block of connectivity, which is Wi-Fi. And now we have six gigahertz Wi-Fi coming, which has enormous capacity. So I, I, I would put this out as a challenge to the industry let's stop um, viewing these two worlds as, um, as conflicting and think about how to harmonize and, and build bigger, fatter pipes by converging Wi-Fi networks and, uh, and 4G and 5G networks. If that is the legacy of 5G, that we finally embrace um, Wi-Fi in a, in a truly integrated fashion, that will be a groundbreaking initiative. And I think it will drive uh, happy customers uh, more profitable operators, and for us, um, uh, you know, much much closer to the dream of connecting the next billion people to the internet. Dan, as always, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to answer the question: Will 5G change the world? Thanks, Sean. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the the discussion today. Will 5G Change the World is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com. The show today was produced and edited by me, Sean Kinney. Thanks for listening.